Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. On this show, we finally return to the journey of Eric Hos, avatar of the eternal champion, doomed to remember his various incarnations and struggle to find and maintain some semblance of peace with his true love. This second instalment is The Phoenix in Obsidian, also known in some markets as The Silver Warriors. Before we crack into this 1973 tale from Moorcock, I just want to give thanks to Jason Atomic for sending me a screen grab from the Loki Season 2 end credits that shows the bookshelf spines of the final programme and, by some strange coincidence, the Phoenix in Obsidian. Not only is it nice to see someone sneaking a reference to the Master of the Multiverse himself, but also something as specific from his entire catalogue as the Phoenix in Obsidian. That did prompt me to watch episode 1 of Loki Season 2, and I have to say it was pretty good. Directed by Justin Moorhead and Aaron Benson, I may have got those Christian names the wrong way around. It's packed with impressive imagery and somehow manages to have better visual effects than some of the most recent Marvel movies. It also builds on the multiverse angle and really doubles down on Loki as a sort of eternal champion figure. Whilst the last series had a very Doctor Who type vibe, it does appear that this one is very much wearing its influences on its sleeve. Or certainly its end credits. It also made a case to me for Tom Hiddleston as Jerry Cornelius. There's something about his appearance and demeanour in this manifestation of Loki that seems very familiar, and the makers obviously acknowledge that debt with the visual references in those end credits. Anyway, on to the Phoenix in Obsidian. Brace for a chill wind and some slightly dodgy audio, feed your polar bears, and join Phil and me as we take the first of a two-part look at the tale of the Lord of the Frozen Keep in The Phoenix in Obsidian. Part 1 we're back in Derry and Tom's and I've got with me Phil welcome back Phil thank you it's good to be back yeah this is the first time you've been back in Derry and Tom's I think for round about a year really yeah because I think the last time we did anything was the fog the Halloween special. Yeah. Have we done anything since then? Did we or not did we do, do the Winds of Gath? Oh, we did Devil's D Day, didn't we? And we did the follow up to Devil's D Day. Devil's of D Day Part 2. Yeah. Imagine it was titled. Actually, we titled it Devil's of D Day Part 2 Manitou Boogaloo, That's which was a great title. Yeah. If I even have to say myself. Um, so, we're back here in Derry and Tom's to talk about the Phoenix in Obsidian, aka. The Silver Warriors. And uh, I don't know, we might have a, a, a quick chat about why perhaps it was retitled for the American market. But before we get into it, um, you've had quite a fun week because you went to Hull this week and saw Jesus Christ Superstar. I did, indeed. I've never seen it before. And I didn't realise there was no talking. It was uh. all dancing and singing. Uh. And I have to say, it was really good. Well, that's right up your street, dancing and singing, isn't it? Really is, yeah. yeah. So now you grew up in Grimsby and I grew up in Hull. And in Hull, at school, in the playground, we had a take on Jesus Christ Superstar that went, Jesus Christ Superstar came down from heaven on a Yamaha, did a skid, killed a kid, went back to heaven on a dustbin lid. Did you have that in Grimsby? No, if we did, I've never heard of it. Really? Oh, it's like Hull and Grimsby, a different world, separated by, okay, an appreciably wide river. There's something about dirty knickers and a bra, <laughs> but no, 
Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Grimsby lowering the tone. <laughs> How did that go? Jesus Christ Superstar Dirty Nick is on a bra. I don't know. You've just caught me. I'd have to think about it. Mm. Uh, yeah, I could sit here for a while thinking about that, but you'll have to come back to me if all of a sudden it emerges fully formed in your mind <laughs> as we're talking. Yeah, so good. Well, this evening for um, our libations, I'm on my second Big on Hairs, Hazy Pale Ale by Magic Rock Brewing, which for the uninitiated is Lidl's house craft beer supplier, who do... You know, to be honest, fairly decent beers that look and sound, when you read the labels, pretty much like the kind of beers you get in posh beer shops like the Optimist in Leeds that cost three and a half quid a tin. But these cans tend to be between £1.30 and £1.50, so they're very reasonable. And I've got to say, this Big on Hairs, Hazy Pale Ale, is pretty decent. I've got also a little raft of steadily increasing alcohol strength beers to follow up with, but I'll get to them as we go along and we'll see if we get to the last one. I did notice the little row of beers and wondered what it was about. Yeah, I've lined them up like a parade. <laughs> yeah, the last one's a small one, but big on flavour, I think. I don't know what that one is. I didn't put that one in the fridge. No, it's been in there for absolutely ages. Okay. Yeah, tempting me, stroke menacing me. What we'll say? What are you drinking? So I'm drinking... I haven't drank red wine for a bit. Whenever it starts to get a bit colder, I like a nice glass of red. So I'm drinking a Porter 6, which I've only ever got before from Majestic. Mm. And I saw it last week somewhere else, and it was cheaper. And I said to you earlier, I can't remember where I got it from, but it is a beautiful, smooth Portugal red wine. Oh, very good. Well... Considering that you started the 10-week countdown to your retirement not so long ago, we're going to have to get to the point, you know, where if you're going to stay retired, we're going to have to rethink our wine buying. And we're going to have to leave all these wine clubs and stop buying these expensive Majestic wines and start going back to what Yaki used to do, which was drink Vino Tinto out of, like, milk cartons. Yeah, Vino Tinto. That's all it was called, Vino Tinto. It was ace, though. Got you drunk. So anyway, this enjoy a, this while it lasts. <laughs> this is a Vino Regional Lisbon, but... Sounds very technical. Vino Regional <laughs> Lisbon. <laughs> anyway, we've got drinks, so that's fine. Now, which edition of The Phoenix in Obsidian are you reading from? So I have got a... Golanx. A Golanx... Omnibus. Omnibus, that's... <laughs> We start again. Yeah, no. You've got the Golanx Omnibus, Eternal Champion Omnibus. So I've got the Golanx Omnibus. Yeah. I've got the last bit. Well, it says it on the cover. I have got the Eternal Champion Omnibus written by Golanx. <laughs> no, it's not written by no, it's Golanx. It's not written by Golanx. I have got the Eternal Champion Omnibus produced by Golanx. That's right, yeah. It's the purplish one with that Golanx range didn't have very interesting covers you just got a little circle with a tiny that's the original dragon in the sword cover so yeah you've got the um, omnibus with the eternal champion phoenix and obsidian and the dragon in the sword in it which it will be interesting to see if the revisions rear their heads because i'm reading from the dell sf fantasy edition from 1977, which is called The Silver Warriors in the USA. It's a nice, tidy little paperback with the, as far as I'm aware, only Frank Rosetta cover 
for a Michael Moorcock novel. I have to say, book. I am getting some cover envy because mine is so dull. Yeah, it's not good, is it? It's really dull, and yours is really nice. Yeah, mine's cool. It's a, a bearded, long-haired warrior in armour with a big sword on a, an ornately decorated sledge pulled by four polar bears. And Frank Frazetta fans will be very, very familiar with that piece of artwork. I know that if the camera pulled out and I saw the whole of this picture, it would be kind of much better. Yeah, I like the dragon in the side cover. And, of course, we've got it on the hardback upstairs, so uh, you can see that. I'll, I'll show you it later. Why, thank if you, behave, sir. If you're good, yeah. <laughs> I'll take you. I'll take you into my study and show you some things. Anyway, on to yeah. on to why we're here. Yeah. Can I ask because I've I've avoided it all the time we've been reading these. Mm. Why have why do we have different titles? Well, I don't really know, and it's always possible that we offend US listeners by saying that it's. It has been a habit with certain British things and books to simplify book titles for the American market at the request of the American publisher. So the Phoenix in Obsidian, for, for, for people perhaps who are uh, literate, is not too hard. But then what was the Harry Potter book that got retitled in America? Um, the first one. What was the first Harry Potter book called? Gosh, it's been a while. Yeah, the Harry Potter reader. Uh, yeah, I read them how many years ago? Yeah, it's called... Uh, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Oh, the Philosopher's Stone, yeah. Yeah, well, it was retitled in America to Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone or something. I don't oh. know why. Possibly because they wanted it to be a simpler title that was easier to leap off the shelf at people. But Honestly, also, don't know. But also, Phoenix of Obsidian might put people off reading it going, I don't know what that is. Well, yeah, that's, I suppose that's the point. Oh, God, American listeners, do us a favour. Tell us what you think, anywhere. My copy of The Silver Warriors, tidy little paperback, nice cover. What does it say on the back? It says, The Eternal Champion returns. In every age, in every world, when peril cast its fearsome shadow over mankind, he was called. Always his weapon waited. Stormbringer, Durandal, the black sword in its many forms. Now, in a world of ice beneath a fading sun, he fights the decay of hopelessness and the invincible Silver Warriors. Now, as Count Ehrlich Scarsel, he faces the direst challenge of his career to save a dying world, but he cannot take up the Black Sword. Mm. And one of the interesting things about this is it features a quote from an extract at the beginning from The Chronicle of the Black Sword, Volume 1008, Scripture 14, Isada's Reckoning. And there's a conversation between Isada, some champion or other, and a woman regarding the nature of the multiverse and the meandering river of time and the will of the cosmic hand and various other bits and pieces. Um, I'm assuming that's in yours as well. Yeah, yeah. He is Isada of Tanalon. The woman is nameless. She says, What a time and space, but clay for the hand that holds the cosmic balance. This age is moulded, that one squeezed from existence, all is flux. Lords of long chaos struggle in eternal battle, and neither ever completely wins or loses. The balance tilts this way and that. Time upon time, the hand destroys its creations and begins anew, and the earth is forever changing. The eternal war is the only constant in earth's many histories, taking a multitude of forms and names. So we have this direct link with the Chronicle of Black Sword, which is something that tends to pop in to the Elric novels, primarily. So it's, he wrote this in 1973. He's making an active decision to tie this more closely to 
the Elric saga, which of course around about 1973. He's probably just written Elric of Melnibonair. He's making more of an effort to tie together all of his oeuvre, mythos, whatever we want to call it. I was curious from the start of reading the prologue as who is this woman? Mm. Well, she never pops up again, does she? No. Yeah. She's just a woman. Although, you know, every champion, every champion, every champion, every champion has a woman. And they're not ever that well developed. So it's uh, not entirely unusual mm. uh, for that to feature in a Mocock book. So it's probably quite fitting. Mm. So, chapter one of An Earth Reborn. Now, I suppose, should we recap? The events of the Eternal Champion, briefly. You've got a look on your face that says, don't ask me. <laughs> yeah. But, in, you know, keeping it brief, a guy called John Dacre, in his dank flat in London, keeps dreaming of people trying to summon him and draw him to a strange place. And eventually he relents and wakes up in the palace or in a tomb of um, Erikos, a mythical champion of humanity and he's been woken up by King Ragnos and his gang and his daughter immediately falls for the champion because of course he's a big buff handsome dude the sword I can't remember what it's called but it like it's like a, a radioactive version of the black sword he fights as the champion of humanity against the villainous Eldrin who we find out are really villainous um, they're effectively different versions of Melnibonaeans, but lawful and good and pure and, you know, generally not that terrible race that the hu humanity has portrayed them as. He falls for Ermizad, a princess of the Eldren, and in rather fickle fashion, I think we found, decides to turn his back on humanity and to cut a very, very, very long story short. Despite being humanity's champion, despite butchering many Eldrin in many battles, he turns his back on humanity and uses ancient weapons of the Eldrin to completely destroy every man, woman and child of the human race on Earth. Which was very severe, mm. but... They were going to kill the Eldrin. They wanted him to kill all the Eldrin yeah. who didn't want that fight. Hmm. So, you know, my my views are quite torn on that. Mm. Yeah. Let's have a, a quick read of the first part of chapter one. It says, Of an earth reborn, I know grief and I know love, and I think I know what death may be, though it's said I am immortal. I have been told I have a destiny, but what that is, save forever to be moved by the tides of chance, to perform miserable deeds, I do not know. I was called John Dacre, and perhaps many other names. Then I was called Erikos, the eternal champion, and I slew the human race because it had betrayed what I considered to be my ideals, because I loved a woman of another race, a race I thought nobler, and which was called the Eldren. The woman was called Ermazad, and she could never bear me children. And having slain my race, I was happy. With Amizad and her brother Arjav, I ruled the Eldren, that graceful people, which had existed on earth well before mankind had come to disrupt its harmony. The dreams, which had beset my sleeping hours when I had first come to this world, were now rare and hardly remembered at all on waking. Once they had terrified me, made me think that I must be insane. I had experienced fragments of a million incarnations, always as some sort of warrior. I had not known which identity was my true one. Torn by divided loyalties, by the stresses in my own brain, I had been mad for a while. Of this, I was now sure. But I was mad no longer, and I committed myself to restoring the beauty I had destroyed in my warrings. First, as the champion of one side, then, of the other, over the earth. 
Where armies had marched, we planted shrubs and flowers. Where cities had been, we made forests grow, and the earth became gentle, calm, and beautiful. And my love for Amizad did not wane. So, he's got it pretty good. The war machines of the Eldrin are locked away again. Everyone has shrubberies. It's pretty awesome. Well, yeah, because he's got the love of his life. He's got a really good relationship with her brother. Was it Arjav? Arjav, yeah. Yeah. He's happy. Yeah, he's got it pretty good. Despite having occasional bouts of melancholy when reflecting on murdering every man, woman <laughs> and child of human stock, he hangs out with his babe, discusses philosophy, travels the world and generally smells the flowers. But fate is never far from interfering and Erikos knows it's coming for him. He has this sense, this doom that lays over him that at some point he'll start having these dreams again. Although he did have it good for a hundred years. Hmm. So it was only... It's been around a while before he started to... That enjoyment started yeah. to wane and he was starting to worry, are they going to call upon me? Yeah, I mean, you think you'd get bored of flowers and gardens of a hundred years, but it sounds pretty swish, to be honest. Gaily-coloured birds and graceful beasts played where mankind had once raised its cities and beaten its battle drums. But within those newborn forests and on the grass of those fresh-heeled hills, there were ghosts. The ghosts of Iolinda who had loved me, of her father, the weak King Ragnos, who had sought my help, of Count Roldero, kindly Grand Marshal of Humanity, of all the others who had died because of me. Yet it had been no choice of my own to come to this world, to take up the sword of Heracos, the eternal champion, to put on Heracos's armour, to ride at the head of a bright army as mankind's chief paladin, to learn that the Eldren were not the hounds of evil, which King Ragnos had described, that they were, in fact, the victims of mankind's intensate hatred. No choice of my own. At root, that was the phrase most often haunting my moods of melancholy. Yet those moods came more rarely as the years rolled by and Hermesad and I did not age and continued to feel the same passion we had felt at our first meeting. There were years of laughter, fine conversation, ecstasy, beauty, affection. One year blended into another until a hundred or so had passed. Then the ghost worlds. Those strange worlds which shifted through time and space at an angle to the rest of the universe we knew came again in conjunction with the Earth. Bloody ghost worlds. And of course, ghost worlds is a specific reference that's particular to the Eternal Champion books that refers to the multiverse, effectively, and the different planes of existence. It's really funny because then we get to chapter two and the title of it just makes you go away up <laughs> of a growing, of a growing doom. doom. Yeah, he always has that doom hanging over him, doesn't he? Yeah. So he's hanging out with Prince Arjav, they're musing upon the nature of the ghost worlds, the meaning of crossing, sorry, the means of crossing over, and humanity's original origins of denizens of one of these ghost worlds. And indeed, John Dacre's Earth is one of them. But returning to bed with Hermijad to take comfort in her snuggles, the dreams return. Now, of course, the dream. It may well not be exactly the same in each of our copies, because we found with the Eternal Champion we read versions that were many years apart, and you read the Eternal Champion from this edition again, and we have these lists of names. So, let's go. First, there were no images, only names, a long list of names chanted in a booming voice that seemed to have a trace of mockery in it. Corum Hale and Ersee, Conrad Arflane, Asquiel of Pompeii, Erlich Scarsel, Orbeck of Canaloon, Shalene, Artos, Alaric, Erikos. I tried to stop the voice there. I tried to shout to say that I was Erikos, only Erikos, but I could not speak. 
The role continued. Ryan, Hawkmoon, Powis, Cornell, Brian, Umpala, Sojan, Clan, Closif Marker, Purnakas, Oshbeck Oi, Ulysses, Elanth. My own voice came now. No, I am only Erikos. Champion Eternal, Fate Soldier. No, Elric, Elanth, Mejinklakos, Cornelius. No, no, I am weary, I can war no more. The sword, the armour, the battle banners, fire, death, ruin. No! Is it all the same in yours? No. Ah! So, the second roll call, mm. which starts with Ryan, the only difference is we've got Renark at the end. Ah, Count Renark. But the first one, I lost you after a little bit. Mm. So you had Corrin. Conrad Arflain. Von Beck. Ah, Von Beck. Erlich Scarsol. Obeck of Cameloon, yep. Shaleen, Artos, Elleric, Erikos. Yeah, so he's inserted Renark and Von Beck. And we'll talk a little bit later about the Von Beckization of the Mocock novels. But after this novel, The Phoenix and Obsidian, there's a long gap with no more inverted commas John Dacre stroke Erikos novels. And in the early 80s, he writes a book called The Warhound and the World's Pain which is the first appearance of Ulrich von Beck. Oh. So we've got Elric, Erlich Scarsol, Ulrich von Beck. And the von Beck dynasty, or the von Beck line, becomes a really important line in probably, I don't know, the middle section of Moorcock's writing, when I think he's developed greatly as a writer. 100 well pains a great book. And he does a sequel called The City in the Autumn Stars, which I think is Manfred von Beck. And then in The Dragon and the Sword... That is John Dacre and another Von Beck. So The Dragon in the Sword essentially becomes the third volume in both the Von Beck sequence and the Eternal Champion sequence and is basically a merged, two parallel tracks that merge. And it's a great book. It, the dreams are disturbing him anyway. So he, he visits Arjav's lab again where Arjav wonders whether their prior conversation about the ghost worlds may have planted some form of suggestion on Elric Erikos' subconscious leading to the return of the dreams. So he offers him a sleeping draft that blocks dreams. And Elric, sorry, Erikos decides to give it a go but he's still quite fatalistic about the whole affair and fears the worst. But Arjav makes quite a sweet commitment to him at this point, which... I think, you know, goes somewhere to explain why Erikos feels like he could spend eternity with these people. And he says, Erikos, if you were called from us, we will waste no time in trying to find you. You are loved by all the Eldren, and we would not lose you. If somewhere in those unimaginable regions of time and space you can be found, we shall find you. And I found that and a following page kind of poked me in the fields a little bit. Because he's spending time with Ermizad, he feels like a condemned man. He feels that it's coming. It's definitely the case that reading these books at different ages definitely alters the way that I've uh, responded to and absorbed them. Because, of course, I probably read this when I was in my late teens. Mm. But when the events in your real life start to alter your worldview, especially you know events of the last few months... It made it quiet and simple and it's melancholy and, you know, it, it struck a chord because it's it's all about parting. And I found it really effective, really effective. 
Yeah, because at some point within that chapter as well, she, they'd obviously talked about it, him and Ermazad, and she'd said that she'd kill herself mm. if, and it, you know, if that was to happen, and he just said, and I would just keep looking for you. Mm. And I just found it really touching. Yeah, and we also learned in our last episode when I talked with Chris, a.k.a. Dirk the Dice, about Letters from Hollywood, Mocock wrote that book and he was reflecting very much on losing friends, losing loved ones to a variety of ends, including, you know, drug and alcohol. And there was a real heavy sense of melancholy hanging over those letters that he wrote to J.G. Ballard. And it comes through in, in some of this writing here, which he was... I mean, he'd written a few years before, but it was obvious that he'd um, he'd lost a lot of friends, he'd lost a girlfriend, and it really uh, it's, it's quite poignant. He says, A golden sun, huge and warm, hung in a pale blue sky. It shone its rays on delicately scented flowers in a multitude of hues on vines and trees, on the white walls of the gardens. We climbed the walls and looked out over the gentle hills and plains of the southern continent. A herd of deer were grazing. Birds sailed lazily in the sky. I could not leave all this beauty to return to the noise and the filth of the world I had left, to the sad existence of John Dacre. Evening came, and the air was filled with birdsong and the heavier perfume of the flowers. Slowly we walked back to the palace. Tightly we held each other's hands. Like a condemned man, I mounted the steps that led to our chambers. Disrobing myself, I wondered if I should ever wear such clothes again. Lying down upon the bed while Amazad prepared the sleeping draught, I prayed that I should not rise next morning in the apartment in the city where John Dacre had lived. I stared up at the fluted ceiling of the chamber, looked around at the bright wall hangings, the vases of flowers, the finely wrought furnishings, and I attempted to fix all this in my mind just as I had already fixed Amazad's face. She brought me the drink. I looked deep into her tear-filled eyes and drank. It was a parting. A parting we dared not admit. Mm. Poignant stuff. Mm. And, you know... It reminds me of some odd reason for one of my favourite Mastodon songs, Roots Remain, which is um, an earth song we very much both like. Yeah. And the, the lyrics to that at one point go, And all that I have come to lose, gone so long it doesn't matter anyway. And all that I have come to gain will remain with me until the bitter end. And when you sit and picture me, remember, sitting in the sun and dancing in the rain, the end is not the end, you see. It's just the recognition of a memory. It's funny how these things resonate based upon experience, but that's the power of reading and music, isn't it? It's wonderful. Anyway, I finished my beer. So I'm moving on to my, well, third beer technically, but second beer of the podcast so far, which is Northern Monk Fruit Crumble with Custard Pale Ale. (laughs) 4.5%. It isn't proper fruit crumble without lashings of creamy custard. I've had some of these weird Northern Monk mashups before, but I have got high hopes, and I am in a puddingy mood. You have liked a few of them. Mm. Who did the Aunt Bessie's Roly Poly? That was Northern ja- Monk. It was Northern Monk. Jam Roly Poly and custard pale ale. Yeah. They also did the roast beef and yorkshire, yorkshire pudding, pudding brown yeah. ale, and that was great as well. I'm going to give this a go. So if you want to. Oh, you don't need to top up your glass because your wine glass is fucking massive and it's full alto- almost to the top. Well, I thought it'd be easier just to fill it. Result. When you've had a taste. Um, can't taste the custard. does quite taste quite jammy. But yeah, it's all right, though. Jam is nice. And that can lead quite nicely into chapter three. Mm. So in bed, 
That night, Ericus sleeps deeply and hears the voice, but he's able to block it out. But it's never going to be that easy because he's the eternal champion after all. And he wakes to a presence in their chamber. And at last, we're over 30 pages into a Mocock novel and we finally get some description clobber, which is always some of my favourite stuff. Yeah. So there's this figure standing over him. Who are you? I asked rather querulously. Querulously. Querulously? That's a hard word. Yeah. I asked rather querulously. Maybe it was some servant. In Luce Patakai, there were no thieves, no threats of assassination. The figure did not answer. It seemed to be staring at me. Gradually, I distinguished more details, and then I knew that this was no Eldrin. The figure had a barbaric appearance, though its apparel was rich and finely made. It wore a huge, grotesque helmet which completely framed a heavily bearded face. On its broad chest was a metal breastplate, as intricately ornamented as the helm. Over this was a thick, sleeveless coat of what appeared to be sheepskin. On his legs were breeches that were probably of lacquered hide, black with sinuous design, picked out in gold and silver. Greaves on his legs matched the breastplate, and his feet were encased in boots of the same shaggy white pelt as his long coat. On his hip was a sword. The figure did not move, but continued to regard me from the shadow cast by the peak of the grotesque helmet. The eyes were visible now. They burned. They were urgent. This was no human of this world. No follower of King Ragnaros, who had somehow escaped the vengeance I had brought. A faint recollection came and went, but the garb was not that of any period of history I could remember from my life as John Taker. Was this a visitor from the ghost worlds? If so, his appearance was very different from that of the other ghost world dwellers who had once helped Amazad when she was a prisoner of King Ragnaros. I repeated my question. Who are you? The figure tried to speak, but plainly could not. He raised both hands to his head. He removed his helmet. He brushed back black, long hair from his face. He moved nearer to the window. The face was familiar. It was my own. Oh, my God. Oh. Ericos has a big freak out. It's a very powerful image, this Alex Garcel has. For sure, very, very metal. Yeah. Not as, not as many pantaloons <laughs> and, and scarlet breeches as usual. Ericos has a big freak out, but it's no good. He knows the score, and despite all of his protestations and grief, it's happening. He is Erlich Scarsall. Mm-hmm. Mm. Now, we've commented, I think we commented when we read The Eternal Champion, how it was like there's an element of male power fantasy to all of this, which um, shines through. Oh, yeah. And I think at the end of the day, if you're going to go to bed and you've got a part from your loved ones and you don't know whether you'll ever see them again, essentially being transported in some really fucking rad heavy metal album cover dude with a huge sword and a load of polar bears pulling a giant chariot. Uh, could be worse. Yeah. Could be worse, to be fair. That was the end of book one. That anyway. was book one. <laughs> I should probably pass comment on the fact that often with these, we end up doing one book per podcast, but that'd be a fairly quick podcast. So we're going to cover book two as well, and we'll probably do book three as part two of this podcast. But book two is titled The Champion's Road. And there's another quote from the Chronicle of the Black Sword. It says, The warriors are in silver, the citizens in silk. In brazen car the champion rides, a hero clad in grief. Mm. Yeah. So that's probably how you've got your title of the Silver Warriors. That and as we carry on yeah. in the story. Yeah, we know that the Silver Warriors are a thing. Yeah. Don't we? Even though... 
we never quite get to them <laughs> in, in the part of the book that we're reading. So maybe when it comes to the podcast, we'll call this The Phoenix in Obsidian and we'll call part two The Civil Warriors. I don't know. We'll think about it. <laughs> but is Alex Garsall now riding a great chariot pulled by four massive long-legged polar bears across an ice plain under a dying sun? Cool. Yeah, yeah, you say cool. It's a dying planet. Well, yeah, all right, it's a dying planet. I mean, you know, it does turn out it gets offered quite a lot of... Um, uh... Yes. Yeah, we'll get to it. So, furthermore, he's got a big nasty barbed lance, a similar lengthy battle axe, and a nicely decorated box of trinkets, including a mirror, so he can admire his new tash. Does he admire it, though, Phil? Does he admire his new tash? No. No. <laughs> no. Does he bollocks? <laughs> because basically his Ericos so struck John Dacre, so everything is a massive disaster. And plus he's missing Ermazad. And he called out to her as he's on this ice plane. Yeah. And he knew he was again the eternal champion summoned to fight. Yeah. It's all about the fighting. He does a lot of wailing, Ermazad's name. Well, yeah, I? he does. Mm. With a moan, with a sense of foreboding in my heart which I was unable to vocalise, I dropped the mirror back into the chest and slammed the lid shut. My hand went out to grip the haft of the tall lance and I clung to it, thought I must snap it with the force I applied, and here I was on the pale ice beneath a darkling sky, alone and in torment, cut off from the one woman who had brought me tranquillity of spirit, the one world where I had felt free and at peace. I felt as a man must feel who had been in the grip of uncontrollable madness. Thinks he is cured, and then finds himself once again seized by the horrible insanity of which he thought himself purged. I opened my mouth and I cried out against the ice. The breath steamed from my lips and boiled in the air like ectoplasm, writhing as if imitating the agony of spirit that was within me. I shook my fist at the dim, red, faraway globe that was this world's sun. And all the while the white bears lurked on, dragging me and my chariot to an unknown destination. Mmm, misery guts. <laughs> well, I suppose after 100 years, you know... Yeah. He was in love. He was in love, but after 100 years, you'd think you'd, you know, at least want a fucking busman's holiday or something. <laughs> Which he's getting, to be fair. So on he travels, weeping his tits off, and wondering if the Eldrum will be able to find him, or even if they know if, uh, know if this particular ghost world, or if he's being cosmically punished mm. for real deeds in a previous incarnation. Interesting point, that, because there is a manifestation of a failed or corrupted eternal champion that, by the time Mocock writes this, had already featured in other novels. Oh, really? Yeah. Who's that? So he's introduced in the Coram novels, and he's a villain called Prince Gainer the Damned. And he wears full he full armour, mm. and he has a full helm on. But, probably spoiler, in uh, one of the later, I think one of the later Coram novels, Coram actually opens his helmet, and he sees a vision of, like, thousands of faces. So Gaynor is essentially like an aspect of the Eternal Champion. Oh. But one that failed and, and became a servant of chaos. Mm. So, and that's how Gainer is, is punished. I don't think there's the possibility that that character... Is there a possibility that that character branched off at some point from Erica's or from his continuity? Was it ever particularly explored? I'm not sure. Could be wrong, because I think Gainer the Damned actually pops up in... He does. He pops up in one of the 1980s Elric novels that we've not got to called Revenge of the Rose. Gainer the Damned is an important character in that, but... I think it's quite a nice concept, actually. Mm. 
you've got all these people that Erico, the Eternal Champion, manifests into. Yeah. All the bodies everywhere of the different... Why wouldn't they have one that didn't quite work? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really cool concept. Yeah. My original idea for um, my RPG character, Gerard Arthur Connolly, was that he was a companion who continually fails. Because, of course, the Eternal Champion has all of his companions. Yeah. So Gerard Arthur Connolly, my idea was always that he was like a really shit companion who gets it wrong all the time. So, yeah, might develop that as we go along the journey. Mm. We'll see. But we'll find out more about these things as this epic reread of all the Moorcock novels continues, probably by 2037 at this rate, it's <laughs> taken a while, isn't it? Well, by the time you can retire, we can really work on the newer ones. <laughs> yeah. yeah, true. Yeah. And I can retire in 16 years. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he does finally find some people at the shore of a salty, thick sea, armoured frog-like dudes riding massive sea lions. And they announce themselves as Bishop Belfig's men, and they escort him to the Obsidian City, mm. also known as Roanark. And we also find out the names of his polar bears. What do you reckon? It's a, it's a bit, it's a bit Santa Claus. His naming conventions for his bears is like he's a lame dad aspiring to be a bad Santa. I've got to say, <laughs> I reckon we could come up with better names. I mean, Longclaw. <laughs> Seriously. How about her wet nose, her muscly ass, <laughs> her farter? I'd go with Mucker, Ducker, Trucker, Weber, Jono, Smigsy. And you think that's better? Yeah, I do. I don't think it's, I don't think it's any worse. <laughs> On his way to Roanoke, Ulrich notes the decor and architecture of having to be the product of twisted minds. So far, so generic Mocock villain joint. Sends out the frog-like dudes at frogs, though. They're just dudes in weird armour. I mean, you know, why not at the end of the day? One of them stretched, then lifted off his ornate helm to reveal a white human face with pale, cold eyes. Weary eyes, it seemed to me. He began to unbuckle the straps of his armour, and it was drawn away to show the thick padding beneath. When the padding was pulled off, I saw that the body also was of perfectly normal proportions. The others stripped off their armour and handed it to those waiting to receive it. As a gesture, I took off my helmet and held it crooked in my left arm. The men were all pale, all with the same strange eyes, which were not so much unfriendly as introspective. They wore loose tabards, which had every inch covered in dark-hued embroidery, trousers of similar material, which were baggy and tucked into boots of painted leather. And they explained to him that they are in Haradek, and he is Morgag, and he leads Bishop Belfig's patrol. All the imagery is cool as ever, and I always dig his descriptions of people, particularly the clobber, in this case, it's more subdued and less extravagant than you often find in these books, but is quite befitting the apparently faded nature of this version of Earth, which is like an Earth right at the end of its run. I think there's a reference at one point to how Roanark is one of the last cities because the rest of them all, the encroaching ice has taken them all. So, I wondered if they're all pale because they either spend all the time in the city indoors because of how decrepit the city is and, and all the salt on the ocean. and yeah. Or it's because the sun doesn't work as our sun does. Yeah, the sun's distant. Two things. The sun is super distant, so they probably can't get a tan. And number two, they don't go out. They just spend all the time shagging, as we're soon about to find out. And they do go, when they do go out, it's so cold, they have to wear all that armour and stuff. Yeah. Or well padded up. Yeah. To some extent, this is like Mocock by the numbers. Certainly, Mocock of this type of, of this 
this time frame. But it always does help that his brisk style helps when things could potentially otherwise be a slog for another author. But this rattles by really quickly. We have the world part established and now understand that Ehrlich's castle of the Frozen Keep is almost a mythic figure in this world because Morgag says, yeah, we know you are. We've heard of you, but we've never seen you. So I wonder if Bishop Belfig will be a solid, trustworthy sort or whether he'll have some kind of dodgy scheme. He's very creepy to me. Mm. His descriptions and yeah, we'll we'll discuss more as the chapters go on. But yeah, yeah, we will. I'm not trusting him. It was a hall with a high arch ceiling coming almost to a point at the top. At the end of it was a dais hung with draperies. On each side of the dais was a glowing brazier attended by servants, which issued ruddy light and sent smoke curling towards the ceiling where, presumably. It found egress, for there was only a hint of smoke in the air I breathed. As if preserved in volcanic glass, stone monsters writhed and crouched on walls and ceiling, leering, bearing unlikely fangs, laughing at some obscene joke, roaring, threatening, twisting in some secret agony. Many bore resemblances to the heraldic monsters of John Dacre's world. Here were cockfish, opinicus, mantigoras, satyrs, man-lions, melusines, camelopards. Camelopards, camelopards, fuck, I don't know what that is. Camelopards, wivens, cockatrices, dragons, griffins, unicorns, amphisbunny, enfields, <laughs> bagwins, salamanders, every combination of man, beast, fish and fowl, all of huge size, rending each other, crawling over each other's backs, copulating, tangling tails, defecating, dying, being born. This, surely was a chamber of hell. Uh, that doesn't sound very promising, does it? No, it doesn't. What about Belfig himself? Well, he's fat, red-lipped and vain, and it notes that Ehrlich realises with a sudden shock that Belfig is wearing cosmetics. Yeah. Shortly afterwards, he's described as fat-lipped. <laughs> he's wearing copious amounts of jewellery. We find that he carries the title the Lord Spiritual, and he has a co-ruler, the Lord Temporal. He also helpfully fills Ehrlichon on some world details. There were four ice lords in legend. But they all died. They all died, said Dare. By the lord of the south ice. Yeah. Belphick frowned and he put fat jewelled fingers to fat carmine lips. His voice was more subdued, more contemplative when next he spoke. I had to look up carmine. Carmine is like a deep orangey red that's used, um, colour that's used in lipstick. Yeah. Yeah. You probably knew that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks for asking. <laughs> Very well, I will presume that. There are said to have been four ice lords of north, south, east and west, but all died save the lord of the southern ice, who was frozen in his great keep by a sorceress until he should be called for, summoned when his people were in great danger. All this took place in antiquity, only a century or two after the ice had destroyed the famous cities of the world, Barbat, Langis Leho, Corodun and the rest. So, that means that the South Ice Lord is Ehrlich. Ehrlich. Belfig can't help, though, when it comes to answering why Ehrlich may have been summoned. The only enemies Roanark has, he says, are the inevitably creeping ice and boredom. He offers him food, accommodation, libraries, slaves, but Ehrlich refused the slaves. Take note, Tal fucking Cabot, of Gore. Refuse the slaves. Don't take the <laughs> slaves. And then muse about how... They may be natural slaves, and you wish you'd got more out of them. 
And Belphick, ha- but Belphick does hand wave an explanation for the slaves, saying it's voluntary yeah. or something. They so... choose to be. Nobody does anything they don't want to do. Yeah. And it, just if you're wondering if Belphick is a wrong'un, Belphick's chief dude, Morpeg, goes to see if he can set Ehrlich up with an audience with the Lord Temporal. And as Ehrlich leaves and tends to say thanks, Belphick is smearing gravy over a young boy slave and licking it off. Now, had, had he said a, a, a slave... With Belphick having said that, you know, slavery is sort of voluntary, it's all a little bit confusing for someone like ourselves, who perhaps don't partake of these kind of uh, scenarios. But the fact it says, young boy slave. Which also then says, is at what age do you feel that a young boy yeah. has th- knows that he can agree to something? Yeah, so um, I think Mocock is definitely using just straightforward villainous coding here. Belfig is a Baron Harkonnen I was going to say, it's Dune! Yeah. <laughs> now, when Loz and I looked at the Fortress of the Pearl, we talked a bit about coding with a villain, because the, vil- the villain in that was fat, bejeweled, wore makeup, slightly pervy, um, right. And we have something remarkably similar here, fat, full-lipped, effeminate, bejeweled, pervy. What do you think to this kind of villainous coding? Because I know that um, there have been a lot of... There's a lot of criticism of Dune for the Baron Harkonnen being uh, a gay villain because the only gay character in Dune is a paedophilic villainous pervert. Could we say the same thing about Mocock books? Are there any positive gay characters in Mocock books. Well, actually, I think there are, because Jerry Cornelius is openly bisexual. So I think there are lots of examples in Mocock of... You can get away with saying that Mocock isn't doing a Frank Herbert, which is, look, this guy is a fat, red-lipped gay boy, therefore that's why he's, he's coded as evil. Do you know, that's funny. I never actually looked at Baron Harkonnes as gay... I just looked at him as it's a power thing yeah. over okay, a boy slave, yeah. yeah. But not the sexual side, it's the killing side, which he obviously got turned on by, I'm yeah. not doubting it. Yeah. But I never looked at it as straight, gay, whatever, just that he was an evil twat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, th- I think that that's probably what most readers take it as, but I can understand that take on it. Because I'm not gay myself, it's hard for me to get overly offended by these things and sometimes even take note. But have, having read those criticisms, I can actually say, all right, okay, perhaps there is something to that. Is having that element of behaviour coded into the villain part of the villainous makeup? You know, it does all these things and is gay, or is it something else? I know it's, it's always hard to... It's difficult, isn't it? It's hard to tell with an author's intentions... One thing I will say about this is, you know, it's hard to judge someone on the kinks, but Mocock is definitely inviting us to think of bell figures deeply unsavoury and perverted. Yeah. And it does say young boy slave, so... Later on, he has female slaves as well. Oh, yeah. He's, he's, um, he's, he he's an equal opportunity yeah. slave exploiter. He swings yeah. both ways. And I, I do with this fat, corpulent, perverted villain archetype. is a semi-regular occurrence in Mocock works, mm. particularly from around about that time, because... This Belphick has some similarities with a character called Bishop Beasley. Beasley is from the Jerry Cornelius books. It's been a while since I read them. I'm still trying to convince Hussein to pick up a cure for cancer. 
um, so I can carry on with them. But I seem to recall Beasley, who was a fat, sweaty, corrupt bishop, at one point getting buggered by his niece Mitzi with a strap on while he eats a Mars bar. Make of that what you will. And uh, what about the one that you and Loz covered? Was he... Uh... Yeah, so yeah. it was a very, very similar kind of character. Mm-hmm. Um, although I I'm not sure sexuality comes into that one. I can't remember. It's not that long since we read it and covered it and I've already forgotten. Where's his tropes, maybe? Or Mocock had genuine beef with a fat bloke? Well, like you say, the name's very similar. Did yeah. he go through a, a stage where he didn't work too hard at naming <laughs> his characters? Well, he never has. I see. Let's, let's face it. Elric, Ehrlich, <laughs> Ulrich, Von Beck. Corum, Hale and Ersi is an anagram of Jerry Cornelius. Is... Anyway, by comparison, he, he does meet the Lord Temporal who we learn is called Shanosphane. And he's altogether more sombre and austere. And after leaving Ehrlich waiting for an hour, he turns up and they have a frank and open discussion over rice and water. So Belfig's fed him all these wonderful, Ooh. you know, tasty victuals and offered him sex slaves. Now Eric has partaken of the food, but not the sex slaves. So Shanosphane gives him some information. I am Shanosphane, he said. His skin was a flat, coal black and his features were fine-boned and ascetic. I reflected, ironically, that somehow the roles of Shanosfern and Belfig had been muddled, that Belfig should have been the temporal lord and Shanosfern the spiritual lord. Shanosfern wore loose white robes. The only decoration was a fibula at his left shoulder, which bore a device I took to be the sign of his rank. He rested his long-fingered hands on the desk and regarded me with a distant expression, which nonetheless betrayed a great intelligence. I am Ehrlich, I replied thinking it best to speak as simply. He nodded, peering at the desk, and tracing a triangle upon it with his finger. Belfig said you wished to stay here. His voice was deep, resonant, far away. He told me there were books I might consult. There are many books here, though most are of a whimsical kind. The pursuit of true knowledge no longer interests the folk of Roanoke, Lord Ehrlich. Did Bishop Belfig tell you that? He merely said I should find books here. Also, he told me that all men were scholars in Roanoke. A gleam of irony came into Shanosfen's dark eyes. Scholars, aye, scholars in the art of the perverse. You seem to disapprove of your own people, my lord. How can I disapprove of the damned, Count Ehrlich? And we are all damned, they and I. It has been our misfortune to be born at the end of time. I spoke feelingly. It is no misfortune if death is all you have to face. With curiosity he looked up. You do not fear death, then? I shrugged. I do not know death. I am immortal. Then you really are from the Frozen Keep. I do not know my origins. I have been many heroes. I have seen many edges of the earth. Indeed, his interest grew, and I could tell it was a purely intellectual interest. There was no empathy here, save possibly of minds. There was no emotion. Then you are a traveller in time. I am in a sense, though not, I think, the sense you mean. Some several centuries, or perhaps millennia ago, there was a race of folks lived on the earth. I heard they learnt the art of time travel and left this world for they knew it was dying. But doubtless, it is a legend. But then, sir, are you a legend, Count Ehrlich, and you exist? You believe I am no imposter, then? I think that is what I believe. Ehrlich ends up telling him his old story, everything that happened to him, everything, the fact he's John Dacre, the King Ragnos business. His time with Ermazad. His time with Ermazad. It says, uh, Shanosfern said nothing for a while, but then signed to his patient servant, bring water and some rice. For a few moments more he considered my story. I thought he must surely believe me a madman now. 
You say you were called to come here, he said eventually, yet we did not call you. It is unlikely that, whatever the danger, we should place much faith in a legend of the sort that has existed throughout history, if my reading is accurate on the matter. Are there others who might have summoned me? Yes. Bishop Belfig said this was unlikely. Belfig shapes his thoughts to fit his moods. There are communities beyond Roanoke, there are cities beyond the sea, at least there were, before the Silver Warriors came. So we get our first mention of the Silver Warriors. Mm -hmm. And he says the Silver Warriors come from the moon, but the moon in the sky, the moon is on the far side of the earth, suggesting that one of the reasons perhaps why this world is so fucked is that the moon actually crashed into the earth and brought the Silver Warriors with it. And Shanaswain reckons that they want the earth, but he's not overly bothered. Mankind's pretty much at his end as far as he's concerned. The ice is coming to freeze everything, so whatevs. He's pretty relaxed about all this. Ehrlich's a bit puzzled by this fatalistic outlook, though. Not overly impressed. But he sets to reading books and brooding, of course, and tutting at the state of Roanoke. <laughs> <laughs> there is a nice, uh, a nice passage here, though. Woman after woman would present herself in my bedchamber, offering me more exotic delights than even Faust had known. As politely as I could, and much to their astonishment, I refused them all. Men, too, came with similar promises, and... Because the customs of Roanoke were such that these advances were not considered shameful, I refused them with equal politeness. Ah, <laughs> oh, bless him. Well done. Well done, Erikos. When in Rome. Ulrich. Ulrich. Oh, yeah. Ulrich. When in Rome. And then, of course, uh, Belfig. It says, and Belfig would arrive with presents. Young slaves as covered in cosmetics as he was, rich foodstuffs for which I had no appetite, books of erotic verse which did not interest me. Suggestions of acts which might be committed upon my person, which disgusted me. Since I owed my room from the possibility of research to Belfig, I retained my patience with him, and judged that he only meant well, though I found both his tastes and appearances sinister. Now, I had actually thought of that as well, mm. to come back to that, because sinister's quite a, a strong t word to use for somebody who... Oh, OK, he has very strange proclivities around sex and how they spend their time but all he's ever done is tried to help so yeah i wonder what it is that he finds sinister without the reference to him licking gravy off a young boy slave belfig just seems like a hedonist and again it's, it's to do i think it's to do with like you know the coding of the villainous character at this point all we've got to go on is that he licked gravy off boy slaves well, maybe you like the sauce. Maybe it tasted nice. Well, true. Roanoke is truly a city in its final throes of the decline of civilization. Mm. It's in the throes of perversion and debauchery. He talks about stepping over copulating people in hallways. It's. Um, he it's, does go on to talk about the orgies and yeah, and how people can murder other people if those people want to die. Yes, yeah. just it's like six a.m. at a rave in the nineties, basically. And everybody who's there is agreeing to whatever they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, well, that is something... There is a reference in there to how he... I can't remember how, how it's couched, but it's like, you know, people are doing these things willingly and he doesn't see anybody... Even though there's the references to the slaves, it's like, to what extent does he take Belfig's assertion that the slave is kind of a voluntary situation... Yeah. yeah, everything, so, yeah. Yeah. But he describes Roanoke as a city gone mad. Mm. 
a dreadful neurosis has settled upon it. Yeah. Which I think is a really good line, really. Yeah, yeah. So later on, he has a big dream, which ends up being an epic crossover dream in which he speaks to a mysterious knight in black and yellow. Mm. Now, Mocock readers will, of course, know this as the warrior in Jet and Gold from the Hawkmoon books, who tends to turn up, say something portentous, explain Hawkmoon's destiny to him, that he must take and bear the room staff or the Mad God's amulet or whatever it is, and the warrior in yellow and black is fulfilling the same function here. He explains his destiny to wield the black sword, and Alex's like, oh, no, I don't want to. And the black sword is like, oh, oh you're going to. And then he wakes up and feels flesh next to him. So, of course, he thinks he's back in bed with Amizad for a moment. Mm-hmm. But no, it's just some bird that stops by to offer herself. Actually, we find out it's not just some bird. But in a fit of pique, he decides to have some rough and tumble in spite of it all and sort of to spite her. But then he's ashamed because, of course, he is. But what went on? What went on in this bed? And in the morning I lay in my disordered bed, exhausted while the woman clambered from it and staggered away, a strange expression upon her features. I do not think pleasures were what she had experienced. I know that I had not. I felt only disgusted with myself for what I had done. All the while, one image remained in my brain. It was to rid myself of that image, I think, that I had taken the girl as I had. Perhaps the image had driven me to do what I had done. I do not know. I did know, however that I would do it again if it would burn the image of the black sword from my mind for only a few moments. So what do you reckon? It's 1973 this is written. What do you reckon was stepping over the line when it comes to having Rumpy Pumpy? When he decides to give it all, what does he say? If you will have such pleasures, then have them all. Yeah. So what do you reckon? Nefting? Belching? Teabagging? Do you know... Just because of how it is there, I tried not to think too deeply of what that would entail for him. Right. Well, we'll never know. But she does come back the next night. Well, yeah, and but it's like she comes back and she's a bit fearful. Yeah. But then she talks about next time bringing a friend. Well, yeah, that's right. She, <laughs> she, she, so she comes back the next night just to tell him that Belfig, whose slave she was and who sent her there in the first place, so she wants some random bird, has arranged a hunt and he's invited, but she asks to go along and if she can bring a friend. So I'm going with Dutch double door action. <laughs> she's a woman of... She's a, she's a slave of contradictions, isn't yeah, it? she is. Yeah. Does she like it? Doesn't she like it? Does she get off on pain, pleasure? All we know is she was confused and unsteady on her feet. When she left. But she came back and said, can I bring a friend with me? Well, if people choose to be slaves, maybe it's a sadomasochist thing. Well, yes, of course. Yeah, could be a sub-dom relationship, couldn't it? Yeah. Mm. Whatever it was, I don't think Ehrlich will have gone sub. I think he'll have gone full dom. (laughs) Just, Just saying, it's just a hunch I've got. So anyway, Belfig meets Ehrlich and they embark on the hunt. Belfig accompanied by his huge retinue of partiers and pleasure slaves. And in a nice fantasy vista, the ship is pulled by massive sea beasts and Ehrlich learns that they are to hunt the mythic sea stag. There's some nice fancy world detail here, very vivid, very visual. As the sea beasts strained and threshed and barked, the wheels of the ship slapped the surface of the salt-thick water. 
Bishop Belford chuckled and exchanged glances with the dead-faced Morgheg. Sometimes the brown clouds broke and I saw the contracted sphere of the dull red sun like a jewel hanging from a cavern roof. Sometimes the clouds gathered so close that they blotted out all the light and we moved through pitch darkness broken only by the faint illumination of our artificial torches. A faint wind came and ruffled my coat, staring the limp banners on their masts, but scarcely brought a ripple to the, to the viscous ocean. Within me my torment seethed. My lips formed the syllables of Hermagog's name, but then refused to move as to what that name, even under my breath, was to taint it. Onward the ship rolled, its crew, the slaves of despair, moved about upon its decks, or sat listlessly against its rails, and all the time Bishop Belphick's fat jowls shook as his obscene laughter bubbled through the air. I began to think that I did not in the least care now if I perish in the waters of that great salt sea. Even having sex hasn't cheered him up any. Yeah. Everything starts going a bit pear-shaped, the crew start to hear and see things, the tolling of a bell, a light... Um, Belfig is obviously up to something as he's behaving very shift well, more shiftily. Ehrlich suggests that the Silver Warriors may be behind it, and Belfig just blusters. And then comes a voice. A voice across the water. The hoarse voice of the sailor came again. There, there it is. He was right. And also I seem to hear a voice calling over the ocean. A lost voice. An ethereal voice. Some mariner in trouble, perhaps, I suggested. Bishop Belphick assumed an impatient expression. Most unlikely. Both light and voice were coming closer. I made out a word. It was a very definite word. Beware, cried the voice. Beware. Belphick sniffed. A pirate's trick, maybe. Best ready the warriors, Morgeg. Morgeg went below. And then the source of the light was much closer and a peculiar screaming began. A wail. It was a huge golden cup suspended against the darkness. A great chalice. Both the bright light and the wailing came from it. Belphick staggered back, shielding his eyes. Doubtless he had never seen such brightness in his whole life. A voice spoke once again. Erlich Scarsall, if you would rid this world of its troubles and find a solution to your own, you must take up the black sword again. The voice of my dreams had entered the realms of reality. Now it was my turn to be terrified. No, I shouted, I will never wield the black sword. I swore I would not. Though I spoke the words, they did not come from my conscious brain, for I still had no idea what the Black Sword was and why I refused to use it. These words were spoken by all the warriors I had been and all the warriors I was to become. You must. I will not. If you do not, this world will perish. It is already doomed. Not so. Who are you? I could not believe that this was a supernatural manifestation. Everything I had experienced so far had some kind of understandable explanation. But not this screaming chalice. Not this voice that boomed from the heavens like the voice of God. I tried to peer at the great golden cup, see what held it, but apparently nothing did hold it. Who are you? I shouted again. Bishop Belphig's unhealthy face was wreathed in light. It writhed in terror. I am the voice of the chalice. You must take up the black sword. I will not. Because you would not listen from within, I have come to you in this form to impress upon you that you must take up the Black Sword. Interesting this, because this chalice, this Holy Grail imagery, which also reminds me of Excalibur. Yeah. What is the secret of the Grail? Whom does it serve? But it foreshadows Mocock's 81 novel again, Warhound of the World's Pain, in which Ulrich von Beck is charged by Lucifer to find the Holy Grail so Lucifer can be reconciled with God. 
And subsequently, as I mentioned before, the Von Beck sequence essentially merges tracks with the John Dacre Erico sequence with the third instalment in each series being the book The Dragon and the Sword, which is kind of ace. So here we get the Grail imagery being introduced into the Eternal Champion sequence mm. to Alex Castle. But even then, is the Grail a parallel with the Rune Staff? It's all that kind of crazy imagery that Mocock loves. So it's kind of ace that all of this culminates in the dragon and the sword, which is ace, but the, it's all ace to a degree because the later von Beckization of Moorcock's novels does get a little bit tedious. Andy Darby and I looked at the Windsor Limbo not so long ago, and in Andy's copy, the main character had been retitled a von Beck. So there were von Becks in that novel, and there were never von Becks originally. So, yeah, it's all getting a little bit tedious, but... An interesting point before the chalice started shouting, talking to him, yeah. was when Morgan mentioned Bladrack and the bishop silenced him and he snapped, how could it be? Uh, but he was quite frightened. So we'll find out who Bladrack is in book two then. Mm. Book three. Oh yeah, book three. We're in book two, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the sight of the sea stag and what we get actually now is quite a tragic passage of action as they hunt it in what is essentially like a whale hunt scenario of harpoons and blood. Yeah. And it's all very sad. It is very sad. Mm. Even Ulrich thinks it's sad. Uh, yeah, he does to a degree, even though he's the one who most successfully puts the harpoons into it. Yeah. Even though it's a fantasy beast, Moorcock's descriptions of the process and the beast's agony is really, really punchy and yeah. visceral and actually quite horrible. Yes. The sea stag bellowed, raising its massive body from the viscous waters. The thick saline liquid ran in streamers down its coarse, oily pelt, and I saw that its muscular forelegs were, in fact, flippers terminating in a club-like appendage that only barely recalled the hoof of a true stag. These flippers it now thrashed in the air, then sank down into the sea again, re-emerging a moment later with a lowered head to charge our chariot. From the top deck, Morgag's voice came, Let fly with the first harpoons! A third of the warriors flung back their arms and hailed their heavy lances at the advancing beast. The horns were almost 15 feet long, with an even longer span. Some of the harpoons flew past the sea stag and lay for a moment on the surface of the water before sinking. Others buried themselves in the body of the stag, but none struck the head, and whilst it screamed in pain, it paused only for a moment before continuing its charge. Let fly with the second harpoons. The second wave of lances flew out. Two struck the horns and clattered harmlessly off them. Two struck the body but were shaken out by a twist of the animal's shoulders. The horns struck the chariot and sharp bone met metal with an awful clang. The ship rocked, threatened to topple, righted itself on its flat lower hull. One of the horns swept along the rail and shrieking, several harpooners were hurled overboard, their armour gashed. I leaned over to see if they could be helped, but they were already sinking as a man sinks in quicksand, some holding up their arms pleadingly though their eyes spoke of the hopelessness of help. This was a brutal, disgusting business, particularly since the instigator of the hunt was at the top of the ship in a relatively safe position. Now the dripping head loomed over us, and we staggered back as it opened its mouth to show teeth half the size of a man's height and a red, curling tongue. Dwarfed by the monster, I took up my stance on the swaying deck, drew back the arm holding my own spear, and flung it into that open mouth. Its point entered the flesh of the gullet, and the mouth instantly closed as, in agony, the beast backed off, moving its jaw from side to side, as it tried to rid itself of the thing inside it. And uh, and it goes on, and it's it's um, it's great Mocock action, but it's 
really, really horrible. And Elliot wounds it again below the eye, and it turns to run, and they chase it down to its lair, a cave, where it makes a pretty valiant last stand. And again, great mocock action here, as the sea stag completely fucks up all the harpooners like a champ, mm. only to be sadly killed by Ehrlich with his axe, and puts his axe into mm. its brain. Only to find Belphick and the ship have fucked off and left him. Oh, no. So, stranded on a sliver of rock in a murky sea, freezing cold, and surrounded by the dead ship men and the sea stag, he's abandoned to his fate. I do wonder if Belric had just had enough of him and as soon as he'd gone into the cave with his men, thought, do you know what? I ain't waiting. I've had enough of you. Well, that's the end of book two, so we won't find out until we read book three. So that was the first part of Phoenix and Obsidian, a.k.a. The Silver Warriors. Enjoyable enough. It was. I mean, there's a lot of moroseness and perversion. <laughs> you know what? You can't beat a bit of moroseness and perversion, I is, always think. Is that what you think? It's a good blend. <laughs> it's a good blend. And to be fair, that's what we got. Actually, no, we got that. We got the moroseness in the Eternal Champion, and we got the good action. We didn't get the perversion. No, we didn't. So no. he's bringing something fresh to the equation. And I guess we'll see how things pan out for Alex Garsol in book two. Three. Three. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. In part two. Yeah, whatever. In... We'll call it part three. Part two? Part three. I don't know. Part two, book three. Yeah. Part two, book... Let's just say next time. Next time when we'll... we finish. Yeah. We'll find out next time. Phoenix of Obsidian. Yeah. Right. I am going to hit my third beer. So before we say ta I'm going to have a Purple Moose Brewery, Navigator, Red IPA. Uh, a slightly more cheeky 7%. Ooh. Mm. And the one I'm never going to get to, which I'll have to save up for next time. <laughs> uh, well, I'll save it for next time. I'll put it in the fridge and yep. we'll talk about it next time. But for now... Thank you for coming back to Darien Toms to talk about the Phoenix and Obsidian, oh. a.k.a. the Silver Warriors. Always a pleasure. Massive thanks to Phil for joining me and Darien Toms to talk about the Phoenix and Obsidian, or the Silver Warriors, depending where you are in the world. If you listen to this podcast regularly, you'll have heard our last episode when I was joined by Chris, a.k.a. Dirk the Dice, of the Grognard Files podcast, where we talked about Letters from Hollywood. In the outro to that show, I mentioned that Chris had a particularly special guest lined up for his next show. Well, that show is out now, and his guest was, none other than, Michael Moorcock himself. And, it's excellent. They talk about Letters from Hollywood, as well as many other things. It's fantastic. So find the Grognard Files, wherever you consume your podcasts. Over on Instagram, I was delighted that Gautam Sheeran, aka Pulp to Pixel, on Twitter, sent me a work-in-progress movie poster for The Jewel in the Skull that has some excellent fantasy casting, including Rutger Hauer as Hawkmoon, Helen Mirren as Elder, and, the true revelation, Timothy Dalton as De Verk. Now, initially, I took the Dalton image as Melidus, because I failed to recognise the helmet as a boar, but then, it struck me, Timothy Dalton as everyone. And on Twitter, thanks to Ash, at jnanagaba 
for sending me a recommendation for a new brew with which to punish Loz, Kessel Run Peanut Butter Jelly Imperial Porter by Emperor's Brewery. A breezy 13.1% ABV. Unlucky Loz, that's lined up for November. And naturally, thanks as always to our patrons for keeping this show on the road. First, those without tear, Anthony Piconti, Tim Cardos, Dave Dempster and Sebastian Weetabix. And to our chaos engineers, Andrew C. Cluner, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Brandon Mays, Craig Ledley, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Gabriel Laycock, Harvey Faulkner-Aston, Jim Kirkland, Jim Knight, John W. Lays, Jules Lawrence, Mal Pertwee, Mary Catherine, Matt Salks, Nelbert, Paul McRandall, PJ Cooper, Scott Butler, Simon Perrins, and new arrivals to the Don Blass, Bill O'Cat, and Offa Ziv. And Offa Ziv dropped me a line saying, Hi, I'm from Israel, a village not too far from Tel Aviv. Mocock had somehow flown under my radar all these years, discovered him about two months ago. Mind completely blown. What a genius. Amazing podcast. So perceptive and so fucking funny. Thanks for finding us, mate, and love and best wishes to you and yours with everything going on over there. We hope you're safe. And of course, thanks to our crafty jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Graham Holden, Toby White, and new arrival, Eliel Westenra. Eliel messages to say, Thank you for the show. Greetings from Finland. New to Mocock, he's not really a big name in the Finnish SFF scene, and there are barely any works that have been translated, so the pod has been a great introduction stroke reading companion. I got into Elric after years of reading Anne Rice, so I think I just traded one vampire to another, and a whole bunch of other dramatic dandy boys. Ah, there are plenty more to find too. Thanks, Elia, for the message and support. It's incredibly gratifying to know that there are so many of us out there, and, like with Earth as if, how far flung we are. And finally, eternal thanks to our patron demons, Turn Malazzo, Alistair Davison, Andy Clark, Andy Darby, David Lee, Fred Keish, Gareth Wilson, Greg Faulkner, Gwen Barlow, Ian Stead, Imria, Janie Stim, Jason Vogel, Jerisa, Joe Monty, Lee Gary, Mark Hebden, Miles Reed Lobato, Neil Burton, Paul Hillary, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, Tom Murphy, the OG patron Norman Beresford, the patron supreme Robert Macmillan, and, all new to the comfy couches in the higher realms, Marius Latowskis. As always, I contact new patrons to say hello, and Marius responded thus. Hi, let me start off by saying I've only recently discovered your podcast, but it's already some of my favourite listening material. I grew up mostly in the 90s, in newly independent Lithuania, and one big interest that I shared, and still do, with my father, were science fiction and fantasy books. The latter were only newly available mostly as the Soviets looked down on that Western imperialist degeneracy. Dad was considerably ahead of me in terms of SF and slightly ahead in fantasy, and introduced me to the likes of Harry Harrison, Philip Hosea Farmer, Ursula Le Guin, and many besides. Eventually, I stumbled into a translation of the Swords trilogy in my early teens, and I was hooked. Coram's story spoke to me like none other before. I started tracking down Lithuanian and Russian translations, as well as English originals wherever and whenever I had a chance. Sadly, they were still not that easy to come by out here until fairly recently. A conversation with some role-playing pals this year led me to create a small Mokokian book club. We've been at it for five months now, and are going strong. Well, as strong as a small handful of nerds can go. 
Be that as it may, the club in town led me to start looking up videos on YouTube speaking about the books I've finished rereading for the club, and this is how I found Breakfast in the Ruins. And much like with that translation of the Swords trilogy back in the 90s, I'm hooked. The topics you cover are right up my alley, and the conversation is brilliant. I'm more than glad to pitch in a bit to keep the podcast going, is what I'm saying. As for the recommendations, I feel at a bit of a loss. I would love to hear you tackle something by Brian Aldis. The Hot House, perhaps. Whether I do or not, I'm still going to stick around to hear more from you. Cheers, Marius. Friends, I cannot stress how pleasing it is for me to have your support and, on top of that, to hear from folks all around the world. It's really incredible. And thanks for sending me those car and book covers and illustrations, Marius. For me, from now on, Coram will forever be wearing that demon face codpiece loincloth combo. And weirdly, the very same week, Jason Atomic sent me the pics of the same editions over on Instagram because he was on holiday in Lithuania. Spooky. Talking of spooky, it's the Halloween season already, so that means we're cramming for the Halloween special that will see Phil, Miles, and I tackle the patron selected nuclear apocalypse Britain is Fucked third instalment in James Herbert's rat sequence. Domain. So look out for that. But in the interim, we'll also be sneaking out our third excursion alongside Professor Cliff Davenport as he tries to put a final nail in the thick shells of those giant crustaceans in Rampage of the Crabs. Coming soon to a podcatcher near you. Right, enough yakking. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us breakfastruins at outlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. BITR Breakfast in the Ruins Radio is live on Radio Garden or via the web player at breakfastintheruinsradio.blogspot.com. We have our Patreon page too. There are a few extra odds and sods on there. But for now, take care, stay safe, and we will meet again soon on the Moonbeam Roads. Derry and Toms, and I'm joined for the first time in quite a while by Phil. Welcome back, Phil. Uh. <laughs> Welcome back, Phil, to Derry and Toms. Uh. <laughs> Shall we start again? <laughs>